Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is aimed towards our patients and the general public, but I really think that anybody who listens to this conversation is going to benefit from it. Uh, There's going to be great talking points and points of discussion for everybody. And we are very excited to finally have uh, Dr. Brian Vickery on our show, uh, through no fault of our own for not inviting him sooner, but we're, we're pleased to have Dr. Vickery join us today to discuss preparing for the new school year with allergies and asthma. And I would say the alternate title is really how on earth are we going to get through the Delta variant? Uh, so we're going to cover all of this and more. Dr. Vickery is an associate professor of pediatrics at Emory University and director of the Food Allergy Center at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Vickery is an accomplished clinician researcher with a focus on food allergy immunotherapy and an active member of the academy. He's a parent, a pediatrician, a leading allergist in our field, and a wonderful guest to discuss today's topic. Dr. Vickery, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave, for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be with you, and 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 really, you know, it's it's an honor to be here. So I'm I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, good. So am I, and I think it's going to be very beneficial for our listeners and very timely, as everybody's going to uh, hear about. But before we discuss some of the important questions related to today's topic, I'd first like to hear your overall thoughts on how you discuss large moving targets such as the COVID-19 pandemic that are filled with nuance um, and going back to school uh, with your own patients. Do you have have any sort of overarching themes or ways that you sort of address this with them? Well, um, you know, I, I tend to approach this like we do other complex topics in, in medicine, and that's really starting with kind of open-ended questions, really, to try to figure out where people are, um, you know, wh- what, they, what they know, what they may still have questions about, what they're struggling with, um, and kind of the, the concerns that they bring to light. Because I think it's important that we don't make assumptions um, we all sort of think about this in a certain way, but um, but if we start if we start speaking um, first without listening, um, people sometimes feel you know talked at, um, and I think we want to avoid that. So careful listening, open-ended questions, figuring out where people are, and then you know of course the conversation is always going to be individualized based on you know on the patient in front of you. Um, some families may have concerns about um, say you know their child's suitability to attend school with asthma um, and the risk of this respiratory virus on their asthma? Or, you know, uh, what about a possible reaction to a vaccine because my child had anaphylaxis before? Or it, it could be a patient with, you know, with an immunological problem who's, who's worried about being susceptible uh, to the virus and, and having a, a poor outcome uh, because of their immune system. Um, so I think it really depends on the, on the context. Um, and, you know, I think if, if I, I tend not to offer too many opinions, if people ask, you know, what do you, what would you do if you were me, which sometimes does come up and and that's always a challenging question. 
um, you know, I, I tend to think um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong proponent of schools being open and kids attending school, and, and I'm not shy about that. Um, I realize there are a lot of passionate feelings on both sides, and there are, there are plenty of kids that do okay with virtual. Uh, but, you know, I agree with the American Academy of Pediatrics and, and a lot of, you know, leading public health voices about the importance of kids being in school. Um, and I really worry about, uh, you know, generational loss and all these second order problems down the road um, from this major interruption in, in education. Um, so I don't volunteer that, but if people ask, um, you know, I, I think there's a way for kids to go to school safely, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Um, and uh, and I'd like to see that happening. No, that's great. And I, I, I picked up on two important things that you said is one is uh, the open ended questions and meeting people where they are, because, uh, as you stated, everybody's coming from a different point of view and perspective. And, and we're, we are all bombarded by information and misinformation and opinions and things like that. And then the second point was you listen. Uh, and I think that's really important, and I couldn't agree more of we need to you know listen to what people are telling us to because they're going to tell us their concerns uh, and then we can respond accordingly. So that's great. Along those lines, I've really always enjoyed um, hearing you and listening to you give presentations on different uh, topics. And I think you have a great ability to take really complicated information and break it down into bite-sized portions uh, that anybody can understand, regardless of their background. Though along those lines, do you have any tips for clinicians as we answer these complicated questions from parents and patients to help them better understand? What, what kind of uh, tips and tricks do you, can you offer us? Well, um, thank you for that kind feedback. Um, you know, I, that's what we always hope for, but I'm not always sure that we pull it off. Um, I think, you know, my tips for clinicians, again, we come back to, you know, that theme, um, figure out where people are um, uh, with open-ended questions and non-judgmental listening. Um, and, you know, again, you might be surprised with what they come with um, uh, and how you would calibrate your response accordingly. Because, again, you may have an assumption in your mind about um, how the conversation is going to go and then find out, oh, actually, that's not at all what they seem to be concerned about. Um, you know, again, sometimes it is misinformation, but oftentimes it's just, um, you know, people um, can surprise you with, with, with what seems to occupy their mind. This is actually true for just a, a routine patient encounter. I mean, we might walk into the room seeing a, a a patient that we've seen before or a new patient where, you know, the, the chief complaint is written down and turn out that the, their major concern is about something different. And mm -hmm. if we just walk in and start talking, we're going to miss that. Right. So again, figure out where they are with open-ended questions. And then as you, as you address uh, patients and talk with them, um, I would keep it simple, right? Short sentence uh, and then pause for reflection and see if, you know, if a, if a patient has, um, a reaction or, or, or a follow-up question, um, and then, you know, avoid lingo and, and, um, and jargon as much as you can. So, for instance, if we were talking about the vaccine and somebody had a concern about composition, um, you know, I wouldn't get too detailed into, you know, mRNA technology, um, and I would not use the word liposome or nanoparticle. I would <laughs> say, so, you know, say soap bubble, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. encased in a soap bubble. Um, and so try to avoid using jargon where you can. Do you find that you use a lot of analogies or anecdotes uh, in your natural conversation? I try. I mean, I, I think, um, 
I don't know how good I am at it, but I, I do think, you know, using common everyday language and kind of relatable analogies um, helps people. Um, and, and, you know, at times, um, you know, I, I do do a lot of research and sometimes, you know, people will, will have a lot of um, scientific questions um, and may have done their homework and want to engage about data and we can do that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's important to, again, kind of meet people where they are um, and, and kind of root it in just common everyday language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't dumb it down, but make it relatable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. great. Well, I appreciate you sharing those overall thoughts, uh, and I think it's going to set the stage for as we get into some of these topics. And uh, to, I guess we just need to address the elephant in the room, and we're recording this in mid-August 2021, a time when the Delta variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the COVID pandemic is causing a huge surge in infections and hospitalizations, which is primarily occurring among unvaccinated individuals. I, I think it's indisputable at this point that that's what's happening here. So do you have any talking points or advice for anyone out there who's still hesitant about receiving a COVID vaccine? So are we talking here, let me, let me ask a follow-up question. Are we talking here patients who may be, you know, considering whether or not to take one for themselves or maybe a parent, you know, about, a, about an adolescent uh, child or a provider working with hesitant patients? Why don't we, why don't we, how would you address this with that parent or that patient in front of you? Yeah. Um, so again, I, I would, building off the theme, would want to start with kind of you know, open-ended questions and non-judgmental listening and try to understand where people are um, and figure out where their hesitation comes from. And again, here, you know, there's, there's some literature available and some, some guidance out there for, for providers about how they might talk to patients um, who are hesitant. You know, I think we sometimes fall into too easily this idea, well, you know, if you haven't been vaccinated yet, you're probably, you know, anti-vax. Um, and you might have some um, deeply held, um, factually inaccurate belief that could even be kind of conspiracy theory oriented. And it's almost like a backlash that's happening. Um, and I think it's dangerous for us to kind of immediately assume that. Um, and I think you're gonna elicit, you know, if there, if there are concerns that people have that, that you might be able to address um, with sort of a factual correction, You'll, that'll come out. Um, but sometimes, you know, the hesitation is around, um, well, you know, if I'm worried that if I, if I get a dose and I get sick from the dose, because people do have, you know, fever or, or fatigue or feel lousy for a day or two after they get the dose, that can happen. Not everybody, in fact, not even a majority, but that does happen to some. Um, you know, I don't have childcare. Um, or, or I, I can't miss a day of work. I don't have any sick leave at work. And so if I, if I take a dose and I get sick and I can't go to work, you know, that's going to, that's going to really, I might lose my job. Right. Or maybe, maybe I actually, I want to get a vaccine, but I don't know anybody near me that's giving it, or I don't have transportation, um, that's, that's, you know, routinely available for me to go get it. Um, and so I think you, again, some of it is not just um, I'm, I'm against it. I think it's, you know, I think it's too new. It's too fast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it, I'm worried about safety. Um, it, it could be a, a, a simple logistical thing. And again, when we, when we 
ask these questions and practice listening, you know, we, our patients are going to tell us this, and then we can work through those things. Um, you know, if it is a safety concern, I, I try to emphasize we have never studied any intervention more than we have studied this one. I mean, we literally have, um, at this point, hundreds of millions of doses given. We have m more data about this vaccine than any other vaccine and just about any other medication, really. Um, and so there's, there's a, a very well-established safety record. Um, I try to dispel any myths about that. Um, again, because because of our practices in allergy immunology, sometimes you know people tend to have pre-existing conditions, right? That that may um, concern them. Again, perhaps the risk of anaphylaxis or or you know a, a compromised um, immune system, and so we have to address that individually from a safety uh, standpoint. But I'm you know I proudly wear my I'm vaccinated. Um, you know, tag on my badge, mm -hmm. and I am, I'm an immunologist, and I am very much pro-vaccine, um, and I want people to get immunized. I, I don't, again, I don't sort of force it on them. I don't judge them if they don't do it, um, but it's, it's this approach to kind of figure out where they are, try to address their concerns. It may take more than one visit or a long conversation, um, but it's worth it, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes you can't um, get people to a yes, um, but, you know, I continue to read things where it, it takes people a while. They, they eventually get to yes once they've had several conversations with people. Um, and so, you know, even if, even if that doesn't occur during the visit, um, those conversations can be helpful. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, the conversations we have surrounding smoking cessation. You may not be successful the first time, but if you have a non-judgmental conversation about it and, and meet them where they are, uh, eventually you may actually, you know, change the minds. Yeah, and you know, I I, I want to bring up here. I, I saw. Um, I know you're you're obviously have a huge social media presence and and really um, are the leading voice. Um, I don't know if you saw Atul Gawande uh, uh, tweeted this um, video that the New Yorker put together. You know, he's a contributing writer at the New Yorker, um, and uh, it's a 12 minute video. It's fantastic, uh, and it tells the story of this. African American widow um, who runs a general store in this little town in Alabama um, that has a population of about 400 folks, most of whom are African American, and it's a rural, you know, uh, uh, place with not a lot of health resources in a state where there's not a lot of vaccination. Um, and this woman has single-handedly gotten 94% of her population vaccinated mm. um, because. She knows everybody because she runs a little general store in town and she calls everybody and she's organized, you know, uh, folks to come in and, and set up vaccination clinics and call people to make sure they attend. And she's gotten almost everybody in her town vaccinated and she is following up with the ones that haven't yet been vaccinated. And it's just an amazing video. And, and, and so they ask her, you know, how are you able to do this? Um, in a, in a place with not a lot of resources in a, in a larger state where there's not a lot of vaccination. And she, her answer is I'm nice to people, you know, mm -hmm. like, I try to, I try to be nice to people. People don't like to be, you know, they don't like to be talked at. They don't like to be shamed. You know, they don't like to be judged. You just, you're nice to them. You kind of hear what their concerns are, try to talk to them. And guess what? You know, most people want to do the right thing. Um, and so I think that was just an amazing story that I that I saw the other day, and and you know it was nice to see 
um, communities kind of coming together and just responding to being nice to one another. Oh, that's great. Oh, I've not seen that, so I appreciate you sharing it. I'll, I'll definitely check that out. As, we, as you were discussing, I was thinking of, uh, I recently saw a, uh, a teenage patient who's heading off to college and they're going to play um, football at a division one school. And they have just been ambivalent about the vaccine as, as their family, no real medical concerns or, you know, safety concerns or anything. They just said, you know, I don't, I haven't really thought about it. So we talked about it and they said, you know, what are reasons that I should get it? And I said, well, quite frankly, if you're going to play football at a division one school, your life is going to be very different if you're vaccinated compared to unvaccinated, just with the frequency of testing that you have, the quarantine measures that will be in place if you have close contacts, your ability to remain on the practice field and playing in games and your availability is going to be drastically different for those who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated on your team. And they kind of paused and dad looked at me and said, that's exactly what his coach said. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, and then I, I just got a message actually two days ago, very proud to report that I uh, just received a second dose and he's fully vaccinated. So yeah, meeting people where they are and in non, non-judgmental ways, uh, I couldn't agree more. Well, that's um, fantastic. I mean, that's a, that's a great story. And, and again, it goes to show you, I mean, people have different, you know, different incentives, mm-hmm. um, different um, things that may, you know, that may, um, sort of push or pull them. And, um, and it's important, you know, to, to kind of figure that out. And I'm glad to hear that. It's a great success story. Yeah. And like you said, unless we have the conversation, uh, we, we don't know where they're coming from and we can't help them. Now, as a leading food allergy expert, what can you tell us about risk of anaphylaxis or allergic reaction to any of the COVID vaccines for the millions of people out there that have food allergies? This has been such so hyped in the media ever since those first reports of anaphylaxis back in December. Uh, do, do people need to worry? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I think one of the, one of the unique things about this um, is that this is the first truly global pandemic um, that has happened in the, you know, in the internet age, right? So things that happen all around the world um, are, are, you know, pinging all of us uh, immediately. And, um, and, you know, huge amounts of attention are given to these relatively rare events. And so I think initially, and understandably, there were some fears and concerns about maybe a, a, um, a higher frequency of allergic reactions to the vaccines based on a few cases uh, initially in the UK and then as they got to the States. Um, but it appears that, you know, this is now settled into the expected rate of, uh, of allergic reactions to vaccines, essentially. And so what we typically expect with conventional vaccines that we've been giving for decades is that the rate of allergic reaction is literally about one in a million doses. Um, and so there was appropriate initial scrutiny um, about these uh, initial cases, but as the denominator has grown, as we've mm. immunized more and more and more people, um, it appears that we're really very close to that one in a million rate that would be sort of expected for a vaccine. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really appear to be anything especially out of the ordinary about this. Um, you know, there were some concerns about if you're allergic to polyethylene glycol, which is uh, itself quite rare, um, even the the the, the drug ex, drug allergy experts uh, around the the world have seen you know each just a handful of cases of of PEG allergy. Well, maybe that's what accounts for these cases because there's PEG in the in the mRNA vaccines. It turns out that's even um, been called into question. So mm-hmm. it really is it, settling into about what we might expect for a normal vaccine. And what FDA and CDC say. Uh, and what I agree with and what I kind of repeat to, to patients is, you know, 
there's no special precautions in particular that are required for patients allergic to, you know, foods, insect stings, drugs, or even other vaccines, um, even if you've had anaphylaxis to a, a previous vaccine. Um, those patients are all still eligible to receive those vaccines. The things that I, that, you know, the, the suggestion is they should be monitored for 30 minutes afterwards. That's the, the main precaution. Um, and I think it's good common sense to say, you know, if you're concerned about this, um, make sure you, you get the vaccine at the right facility. You know, I mean, go somewhere where they might, they, they'd have the, the, the uh, resources to treat you if something were to happen. And it's extremely unlikely that it would, but, you know, in your case, maybe you don't want to go through one of these drive-throughs, right? Um, bring your epinephrine auto injectors just to be uh, extra careful. Um, but, you know, expect that this is really no different than any other vaccine um, and there's no particular risk. And certainly there's no, um, you know, particular warning or contraindication that you need to be especially worried about. Um, and I, I would also just say that, you know, there are lots of ongoing studies about this, including a big one that's, um, that's happening right now through the NIH. Um, we've had some recent data uh, showing that the second dose uh, is possible even in those who react to the first. Um, so recent data uh, out of uh, the group in Boston. And so, you know, again, I'm, I'm in encouraging about vaccines, even in people who have underlying allergic conditions. And I, you know, I mean, it kind of opens up the question about risk, right? And, you know, there's the risk associated with the vaccine, um, given the particular condition, but then there's also the risk of being unvaccinated, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think when we talk about risk, it's not just the the intervention, it's the risk of deciding against the intervention. And, um, you know, again, sometimes people are fearful about feeling lousy for a couple of days. And I'm, and I say, well, that's nothing compared to what's, how you're going to feel if you get COVID. Um, right. So it's, you got to look at risk holistically, not just the risk of the vaccine itself. Yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because you're right. It's not a question of, is the vaccine safe? It's a question of, is the vaccine uh, safe compared to getting infection in, in real life? And what would that do to me? And uh, speaking of risk, what, what have we learned? And I realize that this is a moving target with the Delta variant because we're not quite sure what this is going to do. But thus far, what have we learned about risk of COVID infection for children who have asthma or allergic conditions? We're talking about millions of children out there that have various degrees of asthma and seasonal pollen allergies and cat allergy and things like that. Are they more susceptible to severe illness? So I think, you know, there are, there are data out there and you know the the way i characterize the data um from a high level are that they're still a bit mixed um uh and i think it really depends on the specific question being asked in the study um but i think we it's safe to say that in terms of the severe outcomes that people worry about with COVID 19 um such as you know being admitted to the hospital being admitted to the icu requiring you know advanced respiratory support or dying from COVID, i think the answer is no um, the, the patients that get really sick um, and require, you know, uh, oxygenation and eventually intubation and may die, uh, tend to do so because they develop COVID pneumonia. Uh, in other words, their lungs fill with fluid and pus, and uh, the lungs can't do their job anymore um, to, 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 you know, to sort of extract oxygen from the air we breathe and deliver it to the tissues. Um, and COVID pneumonia is a different process and doesn't appear to be more common than patients that have asthma. Um, the things that really set you up for a COVID pneumonia are, you know, other chronic health conditions like 
you know, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, um, and sort of just general poor health indicators. Uh, and that's, you know, part of the reason why it's hit, um, you know, initially in the, in the first waves, uh, older patients uh, who tend to have more of these chronic health conditions and those who may have had poor access to care over time. Um, and so we know that the, the burden of, you know, serious disease has not been shared equally across the population. Um, and it in, in some way reveals and reflects our underlying health disparities uh, in the country that we have to deal with. Um, but, I, I, you know, so for my asthma patients, I sort of tell them, look, we know viruses cause asthma flares. Um, I would expect this one would be no different. Um, you could expect that if you were to get sick, you might well have an asthma exacerbation uh, that you'd have to deal with. And maybe that would require, you know, um, a prednisone burst um, and some careful follow-up and so on, but, but does not itself sort of predispose you to be more likely to be admitted to the ICU and, and get very, very sick. What do you think about that? What do you tell your patients? You know, no, I, I agree. Um, I talk about how um, you know, it's been reassuring that we haven't seen any significant signals that show that these children are at increased risk to end up in the hospital or have more severe illness. Uh, but that being said, we still want to make sure we take all the same precautions and maintain good asthma control and, and certainly treat symptoms should they occur for any reason throughout the pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's great. Uh, well, let's go back to something you mentioned before. You mentioned that you are a proponent of in-person learning for children uh, for a, a multitude of reasons and that you support the advice from the American Academy of, uh, of Pediatrics. Um, but, you know, what advice are you, are you offering to parents now with this emerging Delta variant uh, appearing to be more infectious? Uh, as children go back to school, I know that there, I mean, there's just so many different approaches from a government level to local school board levels to just individual levels about masks, no masks, physical distancing, things like that. Uh, should we, we should be, be wearing masks, especially if you're not even eligible to be vaccinated at this point? Absolutely. I mean, my perspective is absolutely. I, I, I think it's, I know there are passionate feelings about this um, on both sides, um, but, you know, I, I think this is a common sense, um, easy intervention um, that, you know, that makes a big difference. And, um, you know, especially in light of the Delta variant being, you know, as the CDC says, you know, about as contagious as chickenpox, um, it, 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 it's uh, frankly, my own personal opinion is it's insane to send kids into classrooms without masks on. That's my personal feeling. Um, you know, there, I, I, I'm, I am aware that there are people who question whether or not masks are even effective, and I don't understand that. Um, I think we have plenty of data from around the world, um, and you know some recent data here in the U.S. from the ABC Science Collaborative, um, which is run out of Duke. Um, very, very strong group of researchers at Duke who have followed over a million kids um, in the southeast, um, and clearly show that that masks in school um, keep along with other, you know, mitigation uh, strategies uh, as part of a comprehensive strategy can keep kids in school safely. And in fact, it appears that the risk of in-school transmission with these mitigations, including masks, is lower than the risk of community transmission. Mm -hmm. um, so you could argue actually that a, a well-designed mitigation uh, strategy in a school keeps kids safer than, than they are when they're out with their friends where they may or they can't, you know, they're not being monitored and they may not be wearing masks and doing all kinds of things, right? So the school environment can be safe. Um, I'll tell you, you know, uh, as you said, we're, we're recording this in, in August. 
here in Georgia, where I live, um, we've already started school. So mm. our kids started uh, first week of August. Um, and, you know, as you said, there's different, different policies, different, you know, local and, and, um, and state uh, guidance. Um, and I can tell you here, just in the metro Atlanta area, uh, the town where I grew up, sort of the area where I grew up in when I was a kid is in Cobb County. Um, and in Cobb County, uh, masks are optional. Uh, where I live now is in, a, is in a different part of the metro area, and our kids um, are, are all wearing masks. Um, and, you know, we've gotten a couple emails from the school about a case here and there. Um, uh, there have been no cases that we know of that are in school transmission um, in our town. So our kids have been in school now for two weeks, and it seems to be going pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, in Cobb County, where masks are optional, the other day they sent the entire fifth grade home mm-hmm. from one of the elementary schools. Um, they've had they've had hundreds of cases, um, kids in in quarantine, uh, and and they, the a, a principal had to make the decision. Well, we're not going to have fifth grade uh, for a couple of weeks. Everybody go home. Um, so you know I think that's anecdote, but we're already seeing this now where Delta is is you know predominant, um, and we're in school. Um, masking policies make a big difference, and I think you know one of the big issues here is that. You know, when you take a step back, a lot of these decisions about how school was going to go were made back in the spring or maybe early summer, right? People making plans for what what is the fall going to look like? And I don't know if you remember, but like back then, um, you know, we had we had a lot of people vaccinated. Delta wasn't here yet. Cases had fallen like a stone, um, and you know, the the CDC relaxed you know masking guidelines, and everybody was talking about you know the summer of normalcy, you know, the summer of freedom. We were going to be able to go out to restaurants without masks and, you know, and, and uh, 4th of July was going to be a big deal. Uh, the president made a big deal about that. And so things looked very different back then when, when people were making plans for the fall. And now Delta's here. And I think, you know, it's important to take a look at the, the current conditions, the, the situation on the ground, and make adjustments as needed. And it frustrates me that not enough people seem to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. You, you highlight an important point, and separate from just the mask issue, is, is the trickle-down effects and what happens with exposures uh, regarding quarantine and things like that. And when you have masks in place, just like we talked about with that patient of, uh, of mine with playing football, it's, it's a different world. It, it, it's different ramifications if you're wearing masks versus unmasked and things like that. So, yeah, that's an important point that you highlighted as well. Now, we know last year that schools had to adapt uh, to physical distancing, masks, and frequent hand washing. And I, I remember a year ago uh, how anxious parents of school-aged children with food allergies were about sending their child back to this environment, uh, especially because there's concern about accidental ingestion in the classroom or cafeterias. But in retrospect, do these COVID precautions actually make it safer for children with food allergies? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I actually, I, I don't know. Um, I could see how it, in some ways it could be better and in some ways it could be worse. Um, you know, the, the adaptations again are going to differ by school. Um, you know, some places have had, have had where they're trying to deal with distancing are having kids eating in the classrooms um, rather than eating in the cafeteria. Um, and, and understandably that gives parents some heartburn. Um, on the other hand, some places have, more like grab and go lunches. So the way they're doing lunches is different. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, rather than having kids lined up in a cafeteria where they're packed together for, you know, uh, a few minutes while they're waiting to, to pick up their lunch, they're already sort of pre-made and boxed and they just grab something. And that may um, make it harder to understand, you know, what's actually in it. And there's not a conversation maybe with, with a staffer. Um, so, so, so I don't know. I mean, I could see how people would be more or less concerned. Um, uh, what are your thoughts? Do you, I don't know of any data looking at this. Maybe you do. Um, I, I'm curious to, to know what you think. Yeah, I agree. I'm not aware of any data, um, but uh, in the conversations I have with families, I think, you know, as you as you alluded to, um, hand washing is always good because uh, <laughs> it can reduce any accidental exposure. And then just the physical separation sure. and, and not and just the overall, um, I think the theme of no sharing uh, <laughs> across the board yeah. is always reassuring when it comes to food allergies. So I actually used it to highlight the positive aspects of it. And I think some families are reassured by that. Yeah, I think that's 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 I, I like that um, sort of um, kind of putting a positive spin on it. Um, certainly, you know, one one thing I hear a lot from patients, um, and and I bet you do too, is when you're seeing uh, established patients back for a follow up visit, um, and and kind of asking how they've been doing. And of course, we, you know, we always talk about just the, the stress and strain of the pandemic and how they're coping and so on. Um, but then when it comes to sort of the, the medical intake, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty typical that I hear, well, this is the best year we've ever had for allergies and asthma, you know, mm -hmm. um, things have been really good. Um, and, and all these things that we're doing um, to mitigate the effects of the coronavirus um, have these second order effects that are helpful for other conditions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit just to kind of move away from COVID for a few moments. <laughs> and just in general, uh, we know that children with asthma, chronic health conditions, food allergies, other allergic conditions often need either daily preventative therapies or maintenance therapies or as needed treatment as well. Can you just highlight some of the important points in regards to preparing ahead of the school year with uh, treatment plans, medications, refills, things like that? Yep. Um... So this is a, a an annual uh, cycle, and we, we always um, are busy getting getting patients and 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 kids ready for for school again uh, in the summertime. And so, you know, there are uh, typically, um, you know, both written forms that each school wants uh, filled out, and that that uh, helps the school prepare for the the need to administer medication at school. Um, and that's typically, you know, a school-specific form or a county-specific form on, on their own letterhead that, that needs some information on it. Um, and then beyond that, there are the, the action plans that we like to provide, um, both for sort of food allergy and anaphylaxis action plans, as well as asthma action plans. Uh, and, and some patients certainly need both. Um, and so that, that kind of informs the school about the child's individual medical needs um, and how to respond should they uh, have a need when they're at school, what they're supposed to look for, what they're supposed to do. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's supplemented with a letter um, to the school, um, you know, explaining a particular need for a particular patient. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think that with, you know, updated prescriptions and, you know, kind of restocked um, in date uh auto injectors inhalers what have you um uh, this is sort of good annual hygiene 
to mm -hmm. update everything, have in-date um, uh, medications and enough of them with enough refills um, and so on. And our teams work really hard on this. Our, our nurses here uh, work with families to make sure they have everything they need. And, you know, I get these around this time of year, I get, I had a stack the other day that looked like the, the phone book, um, yeah. you know, of, of, of forms to go through. Um, and, and so this is an important part of preparing kids for school. And then I would say, and that's, that's typically the approach for most kids. Now, um, private schools may have different um, rules and regulations than public schools do, um, and they may have different kind of forms. Um, then beyond that, sort of the next order thing is, um, is 504 plans. Um, and so 504 plans or, um, or IEPs, uh, typically 504s, are sometimes uh, used in patients attending public school who may have specific needs. Um, and this, this um, is uh, essentially language that refers to protections afforded to patients with disabilities um, and you know, may spell out very specific precautions that need to be taken by the school and, and a 504 has to have a, a physician sponsor sign off on it. Um, I have a few patients that have 504s, but um, in my experience, um, you know, I encourage families to have a call with the school, meet with the nurse, um, meet with the teacher, discuss the, their child's needs, um, you know, kind of come to a, a, a mutual understanding of, of what may be needed to keep the child safe at school, kind of run through the plan, um, using those sort of conventional strategies. And in my experience, that, that usually does the job. Um, it, it, is, it is the occasional case where a family isn't, isn't, doesn't feel like a, the conventional approach is sufficient for their child and they need to take it to the next level and get that 504. Um, but I would say that's, that's not the rule. Um, and then, you know, it, it's, it's all about just kind of open lines of communication, um, you know, throughout the year, having regular check-ins with the school. Mm. No, those are great points. Uh, and yeah, I like your use of the words annual hygiene, because uh, as you as you stated, um, this is the time of year when we're inundated with forms and prescription refills and things like that. So planning ahead is always helpful. What about um, our our school children who have asthma or allergy symptoms? Are there some exposures inside the classroom or school setting that can be uh, particular triggers for them? Yeah. So so um, you know. School buildings, um, depending on where you live and, and kind of the, the, the age of the school, sometimes school buildings um, can accumulate allergen, um, things like um, not only what you might expect, uh, uh, dust, but, but uh, cockroach um, and even rodent allergens. Um, you know, some of, these schools, some of these school buildings are older and may have um, water leaks and, and issues like that. Uh, just, just you know, basic disrepair um, that can lead to the accumulation of kind of indoor allergens. Um, sometimes with, with um, you know, again, with, as we talk about mitigation strategies for COVID, um, you know, some places have taken to keeping windows open as much as they can um, to ventilate the building, and, and that could also introduce outdoor allergens um, that may not otherwise you know, in, in the past have been much of a problem, but, you know, as we get into the fall, you may have, you know, weed pollens that, that actually make their way into the school. Um, and so you have, you have the potential for um, respiratory exposure, even inside the building, certainly when kids are outside um, in recess, 
uh, if you if you live in a kind of a wooded area um, uh, as as we get into the fall that that can be an issue um, and um, and then you know in terms of other allergens you know parents should be aware that even food allergens can can be um, something that that are not just at lunchtime right like sometimes there are crafts that are that are um, or science uh, projects that use uh, uh, food proteins. My my third grader actually came home from school the other day and told me about um, a, a science experiment that they did um, looking at sort of basically how, um, you know, how, how substances are hydrophobic and how they're hydrophilic, you know, and how, how oil and water uh, substances, you know, repel each other and so on. And they used milk um, mm. as part of the experiment. Um, you know, art, art classes have historically, you know, uh, been famous for using um, peanut butter uh, to, to make bird feeders and things like this, right? So, so you can have allergen exposure inside the, inside the, the school. I and mean, the other thing, too, is, is, is viral infections, right? So when we talk mm -hmm. about, you know, uh, asthma triggers, um, we know viral infections are, are part of it. Um, I think we're fairly covered in that department um, with, with what we're doing with, with COVID for the schools that are doing it, right? But, but we know, uh, yeah, as we talked about before, not everybody's masked, uh, not everybody's distanced. And um, we know year over year, we have, you know, peak asthma prevalence, um, you know, in the fall that you can almost set your watch by um, because of the circulation of fall respiratory viruses. Um, and so to the, you know, in places where there's not a lot of masking happening, uh, those indoor viruses can certainly drive asthma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like as you mentioned, there's a lot of different triggers that can be individualized based upon which child we're talking about here. Well, what about uh, sensitive skin? We have so many patients that have eczema, sensitive skin, dry skin, uh, just gets easily irritated. How can they keep their hands sanitized and, and clean uh, without destroying their skin? Oh, that's a hard one. I mean, um, you know, kids that have hand eczema, patients with hand eczema, it's just, it's, it's, it's really tough to manage. Um, and especially now, you know, I think we're rightly emphasizing, you know, hand hygiene um, during the pandemic, and that's going to make things especially hard. It's always hard with, with hand eczema, and especially now. Um, you know, good old soap and water um, is a really good way to sanitize hands. Um, and, and perhaps, the exposure to the water um, is a little gentler on the skin than using an ethanol-based hand sanitizer over and over and over again during the day. Um, but it's it's a it's an uphill battle. Uh, I think you know the other thing is moisturizer, right? We we use thick moisturizers to to help manage eczema, and maybe that's a little bit easier when it's on the you know the elbows or behind the knees or on the trunk. Um, but it's hard to you know, to use an appropriate moisturizer on your hands, um, particularly when you're in school. So um, this is a tough one. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And sometimes it's even a note from us that says, uh, let so-and-so have their moisturizer with them and apply it liberally throughout the day or things like that. But uh, I just wanted to hear your thoughts and see if you had the magic answer for the rest of us. <laughs> no, I, I, unfortunately I don't. And again, I, you know, I, my experience is that, um, it's hard, it's hard to get, you know, it's hard to function when your hands are coated with Vaseline, understandably. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, even if you provide such support, um, you know, 
it's 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 not likely that you'll get enough of it on the skin um, enough times during the day to really make a dent in it. It's just a hard problem. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned that um, last year was actually really a good year for a lot of people with either allergies, asthma, and even you know mm-hmm. viral infections. And but uh, interestingly, we've seen an unprecedented increase in viral infections this summer, uh, particularly with something called RSV, which has predominantly been a winter virus. We thought that it was gone, but it was just sort of lurking in the background. So help set the record straight here, because I've seen all kinds of things on the internet, Dr. Victory. Uh, So did wearing masks weaken everyone's immune systems, or are there other reasons why we're seeing this surge in respiratory infections this summer? Uh, Masks do not weaken the immune system. Let's be clear about that. Um, (laughs) So so no, that is not the cause. Uh, And it is true. I mean, the, the epidemiology of other viruses has been very interesting. Um, you know, as I said before, we have this um, seasonal peak uh, in the fall uh, that you know you can set your your watch by um, in years past, um, related to the circulation of respiratory viruses, of which RSV is one, but there are others. Um, and we didn't really see that, and we saw almost no influenza last year um, uh, because again, you know, of the, of the precautions that, that were implemented for, um, for coronavirus. What we have seen now is the emergence of RSV, um, you know, in the warmer months, which is not typically what we see. And so I think that basically that from what I understand and from what I've read, it appears that um, there has been sort of this delayed emergence or shift um, that was related to um, actually unmasking, right? So typically um, RSV starts in the fall, proceeds through the winter, and then kind of peters out when we get to the spring each year. And it's a, so it's a, it's, a, it's a perennial thing. We see it every year. Um, and again, some other viruses too. Um, and um, what, we, what we saw this past winter is that there wasn't a lot of RSV, again, because people were, were masked and distancing and, and following precautions. And then as we got into the spring um, and we started to relax um, uh, mask wearing and relax some of the other precautions, we've now seen the emergence of RSV in sort of a delayed uh, form. Uh, And so it sort of shifted. um, And what's interesting about that is that, you know, a lot of RSV uh, is landing kids in the hospital now, or Mm -hmm. I should say um, uh, a, a lot of kids that are hospitalized have uh, RSV, um, and that's unusual for uh, for this time of year. And there's some suggestion that actually the year-over-year exposure to RSV creates some immunity. And uh, we didn't have that last year because there wasn't a lot of RSV circulating, and so it's hitting people particularly hard because they 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 lost a year of exposure that helps kind of tune up their immune responses. Yeah, it's been a fascinating thing to watch unfold. And we've had the, a similar scenario here with just uh, unprecedented admissions to our ICU of, of babies and, and toddlers just really sick with RSV and parainfluenza and things like that. So um, the story continues to unfold during this pandemic, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, and I, took a, I, took a look, I took a look at our, uh, not to cut you off, I took a look at our yeah. barometer um, in our hospital uh, just this morning. L- listeners might be interested in this. So just the current cases as of this morning, uh, and in terms of our hospitalized, uh, uh, or sorry, our, our, our test positivity over the past week, um, most of them are RSV. 
Um, so mm-hmm. when when a patient presents to the emergency room, they get a they get a respiratory viral panel that looks at a bunch of different viruses, um, uh, one of which is SARS-CoV-2. And we had 133 positive RSV results, 114 rhinovirus, uh, and then 106 SARS-CoV-2, uh, mm. followed by 34 paraflu positives and 28 adenovirus positives. So uh, just to, to sort of put it in context, lots of RSV right now. And this is, yeah. as you say, this can be, you know, RSV we've known about for a while. RSV can be dangerous, uh, especially for young babies and, and especially those that were that are premature or have um, you know, heart conditions or other yeah. chronic respiratory problems. Those are those are staggering uh, numbers that you shared with us. And it's actually a perfect segue into the next question of you know, how can any parent or school personnel tell the difference between COVID infection and other viral infections? That's a hard one. Um, uh, you know, I think sometimes what comes up is the difference between how do I know if I had COVID or, or how do I know if this is my allergy? Um, because they can both produce sort of nasal congestion and and runny nose and, and so on. Um, splitting the difference between COVID and other viral, common viral infections in childhood is hard. And that's gonna, that's gonna be um, one of the challenges as we get back into school. Um, you know, I think one of the things that stands out to me is that seems to be quite unique to COVID is the, is the anosmia, right? The, the, the loss of smell or taste, um, which you tend not to see with other viral infections. Now, just because you don't lose um, smell or taste doesn't mean you don't have COVID. But if that were to happen, um, that would that would really in somebody who had, you know, say fever and cough and sore throat, and then they lose their sense of smell or taste, that's much more likely to be a COVID infection than, you know, than rhinovirus or, or paraflu, which could also present with, you know, runny nose congestion, sore throat and low grade fever. Um, so it, there's a lot of overlap. Um, that loss of smell or taste stands out. Um, the other thing is that I would say that's kind of somewhat unique about COVID that we understand is this um, MISC um, uh, presentation, uh, this, this multi-system inflammatory uh, disorder that we're still learning about, which is quite rare. Uh, I, I want to emphasize to listeners, very rare, um, but appears to be associated with COVID infection in kids. Um, and this looks like you know, three or more days of fever, rash, abdominal pain, tend to have a lot of diarrhea, um, but significant GI symptoms. They may have um, conjunctivitis or changes in their oral mucosa, uh, you know, peeling of the, of the lips uh, or the tongue, uh, and they can actually be quite sick. Um, some of them may have um, heart involvement and, and look quite sick and, and even look like sepsis. Now, those are rare cases, but, um, but that's an important um, COVID-related presentation um, for listeners to be aware of. Yeah, I love that you point out two big things that I, I heard from you. Is one is the significant overlap with all these other viruses that kids are are having now and are going to continue to have, and then two is not to rely on some of the key factors of COVID infection that you know may or may not occur. Um, which leads me to the next question then is if really testing it for COVID is the only way to tell the difference, where do we stand with you know, these rapid uh, on-site test, uh, testing options? Or do we have them in every school and every, every building across the country where we can just test kids and keep them in the classroom? Or are we still doing PCR tests? Or what's the latest on that? Well, so uh, that's, a, that's a good one um, and, a, and a sort of a tough question to answer because, again, your mileage may vary depending on where you live and, and, and kind of what your, what your 
school has decided to implement or, or what your kind of local public health authorities recommend. Um, when we talk about rapid tests, um, we have, you know, it's important to talk about um, there's antigen-based tests and there's PCR-based tests or polymerase chain reaction, um, and each of them have kind of pros and cons. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they are best used in patients who are symptomatic, um, uh, especially the PCR tests, because PCR tests pick up, uh, they're very sensitive and they can pick up small bits of virus that may have been there from weeks ago that are not currently causing a problem. And so they can pick up old, irrelevant infections or past infections, recovered infections. Um, and in a patient without any current symptoms, that, that can be um, a misleading result. Um, there are places that can give you a PCR result um, very quickly the same day. Um, I think when the pandemic started, it often would take a little while to get a result back. Um, now you can get pretty rapid turnaround on PCRs. Um, and then we are seeing these antigen-based tests coming out um, where, you know, you're detecting the presence of, of antigen or virus in the, in the nose. Um, there are also other types of uh, antigen tests. There's some, some saliva tests and so on. And I think we're still learning how best to use these. There are those who advocate for frequent rapid test results, um, even like at-home self-testing with these rapid antigen-based tests um, in, in helping people decide on, you know, what to do. Um, uh, you know, if we're going to get together with, with uh, uh, you know, some family at Thanksgiving and Delta is raging, you know, how can we decide if that's a safe thing to do, especially if we have kids under 12 who aren't vaccinated and are in school? Uh, you know, well, if you take if you take at home rapid tests and everybody's negative, then you feel better about, you know, and nobody has any symptoms and you feel better about getting together. That's a, a kind of a management strategy that I don't think is widespread, but there are a lot of folks who have been advocating for this for a very long time. Um, and you see that, you know, if you go to your local um, CVS or Walgreens or other, you know, uh, pharmacy, you'll see, you know, rapid at-home testing kits that have been approved for use, um, but we're not deploying them in quite that same way. Um, schools, uh, I, I think, again, are sort of a mixed bag. Some are, are um, you know, trying to use tests for patients who present to the school nurse who may have symptoms. Those are typically going to be antigen tests. Um, others just send the kids home. And then, you know, then there's, there's surveillance testing, which is a whole other subject about, you know, just sort of randomly testing people in a population to see if you can identify kind of what the overall frequency is. So it's, it, you know, I, I kind of danced around that because it, it's, um, there are lots of different tests and lots of different use cases. And so the answer is sort of complex. Um, you know, I would, I would refer, um, you know, listeners who have, if they have a symptomatic kid, talk to your pediatrician. Um, the pediatricians have generally worked this out. Um, and, you know, so symptomatic kids, um, are sort of a different evaluation pathway than asymptomatic kids or, you know, exposed contacts. Um, but this is, this, is, this is pretty well worked out and, and, and probably is best done in partnership with a physician. 
Yeah, that's great. And you, yeah, I appreciate you, uh, your, your answer to that because you do highlight the complexities of it, not only between the different types of tests, but just the availability, that's, which is going to vary by basically where you live uh, and where your children go to school. And, and um, you have, you just get, like with all tests, you're going to, I mean, you know, we see this every day, you know, there are false positives and there are mm -hmm. false negatives, right? And yeah. so you want to make sure if you get a test, you're able to interpret it correctly and, and which test you use and at which point you do it um, influences, you know, that false positivity and false negativity. And that's why having guidance from a trained physician is going to be really helpful in that scenario. Mm, absolutely. Dr. Vickery, ragweed season is upon us. And there are many people that are itchy, sneezy, having coughs and things like that. And I know that when I'm in public and somebody sneezes, it, it is like wherever, you know, kind of gets real skittish around them and I, for a while. So any ways to tell the difference between COVID and, and seasonal or perennial allergies? Well, I mean, the thing I always come back to is allergies should itch, right? Um, mm -hmm. Allergic inflammation happens when um, uh, specific immune cells become activated, um, mast cells and basophils and others. And these cells, when they recognize allergens through the IgE that is bound to their surface, become activated and they, they release a whole bunch of chemicals into the tissue um, that can cause nasal congestion, runny nose, post-nasal drip, cough, um, that can, again, overlap with, um, you know, upper respiratory illnesses um, and, and look very much like COVID. But the key difference is that those, those substances that the cells release also irritate nerve endings and cause people to itch. So allergies should make people's um, uh, eyes itch, perhaps. They should sneeze. Um, they, they often experience itching in their soft palate or ears. Um, and, you know, and of course, can happen uh, typically in patients with other uh, allergic conditions like asthma, uh, eczema, maybe food allergies. Um, and, you know, and are often a known condition. So uh, certainly in somebody who has a, an allergic background, who is known to have uh, allergy and has symptoms that are accompanied by that, that itching in addition to the uh, nasal congestion. I'm much more likely to think uh, allergies than COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just one more thing to worry about, right? I, it's funny, we started talking about this 12 months ago, and then we had to talk about it again in the spring during pollen season, and yet here we are again for round three. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> hopefully it was not around four. Uh, you mentioned before that influenza essentially disappeared last year, uh, we think due to all of the mitigation measures that were put in place, like uh, wearing masks and distancing and hand washing. Are you going to recommend that people receive the influenza vaccine this autumn? And, and if so, why is this year going to be different? Absolutely. Yeah. So, again, um, as we talked about, you know, it's very difficult to parse these different viruses clinically based on how they present. Um, and so if we if we have a tool where we can really reduce the the likelihood of a patient having influenza um, and sort of take that one out of consideration, we absolutely should do that. Um, and that's especially important, again, because, you know, in many places, uh, the masking that was pretty universal um, that helped really blunt the, the influenza season last winter is arguably not going to be the case uh, this year. And so, you know, if, if unless we really reverse our position on masks um, between now and then, I would expect that we'll have much more seasonal flu activity this year. Um, and so 
it'll be, you'll just have more and more kids presenting to the urgent care ER pediatrician's office with, you know, cough and fever and headache. And the question is, is it COVID? Is it flu? Um, you know, and, and so by all means, get flu shots, um, protect your kids. And then the, the second order effect there, I think that's really important, is that we know influenza, um, you know, it pr can produce severe disease that results in hospitalization and or death. Um, and I'm really concerned what we're seeing with Delta um, already is that hospital systems everywhere are becoming overstretched. Um, we know there are already issues with staffing. It, we're already seeing in August issues with bed availability, ICU bed availability, ventilator availability. I mean, just like we did in, in the first wave. And so if this continues, um, you know, and there, there are these, there are these, you know, effects directly related to sick COVID patients and how they're stretching the system. But then there's these collateral effects when patients who are affected by other non-COVID illnesses also need hospitalization or critical care, and they can't access it because there's no beds available because they're taken up by patients that have COVID. You know, you want to do everything you can to protect yourself and your children so that they don't need hospitalization. And a, a flu vaccine is a simple, easy, effective way to do that. That's another great point that you bring up. It's just so much collateral damage that occurs um, outside of just being acutely sick with, with COVID that we all need to consider. Well, Dr. Vickery, uh, you've given us such wonderful information and we've covered a, a lot of territory. And I know this is going to be very helpful for, for folks listening to help them with their own personal decision making. And as we wrap up, if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask you just a few uh, more rapid fire questions, just kind of bang, bang, bang as we close out. Would you be up for that? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Excellent. Dr. Vickery, I'm going to start with a hard one. All right. What has been your favorite COVID vaccine conspiracy? One that is clearly blatantly false and completely made up, yet still believed by many. Okay. I think this, that, this is easily uh, going to be the microchip one, right? So <laughs> the, the idea that we're using vaccines um, as, as, um, uh, ways to track the population and um, uh, lure them into some sort of unwitting global surveillance program where we can then, you know, control them. Um, because, first of all, the vaccines don't have microchips in them. Uh, that's empirically disprovable. Um, beyond that, Everybody is already participating in a global surveillance program. It's called the smartphone in your pocket. And if, <laughs> if, if, if you participate in anything online, you are being tracked. You are voluntarily giving away so much of your information already. If you've ever searched a website and seen an advertisement for a product you just recently looked at on Amazon, that should ring a bell. You are being watched already, and everybody is volunteering in this experiment. They don't need to inject you with a microchip to follow you and know just about everything about you. Shame on you for introducing common sense into this conversation. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, You're very active on social media and you present yourself as a trusted medical professional, which you are. Where can our listeners find you and follow you? Uh, so look for my handle, ATAllergist, um, at Twitter and also Instagram. 
All right. Do you have a preference, Twitter or Instagram, or do you, you like being involved in both for different reasons? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I personally, for my own personal use, I like Twitter um, because I can follow people like you and other people smarter than me who can um, show content to me that I care about. You know, so mm -hmm. um, when a study breaks, uh, that's an important study related to COVID or something else, um, you know, I have some trusted voices that I follow. Um, that really cut through the fog and and tell me what I need to know. So I I like Twitter, um, and I'm just too old to understand Instagram. Instagram is the is uh, like I have I have some folks that help me with my Instagram because I, I I am now aging out. I, I've been involved in Instagram for two and a half years. I still don't understand it. It's uh, <laughs> some mental block. I don't know what it is. I'm trying. I think to. it's a, I, I think I I hate to say this, Dave, but I think it's a generational thing. I think we're uh, we're moving on up in the world. Oh, all right. We'll save that conversation for when we're in person <laughs> sharing adult beverages together. Um, okay. Uh, hard question. Ready? Yeah. Coke or Pepsi? I'm not even going to answer that. Yeah. I, well, do, I, do you want to inform our listeners why? I, I I was born and raised in Atlanta, and I live yeah. here now. Um, there, I don't even know what the other thing you mentioned is. <laughs> Moving along then, what is your favorite part about being involved in food allergy research? Oh, that's easy. Providing, providing hope, um, mm. you know, being able to um, really work on a problem that has not, that, that, that's a big problem, affects a lot of people for which we've never really had any decent solution and which really dramatically impacts people's lives and being able to um, offer them the possibility of uh, a better tomorrow. Uh, and that, you know, that gets me up and going every morning. I love it. And we're thankful for all that you do. This is our last question. If you could uh, put a billboard next to every major highway that everybody would read as they drive to and from, and you could put anything you want on there, what would it say? Uh, it would probably say, put down your damn phone. <laughs> um, I mean, that's not maybe a, a particularly... Uh, 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 you know, profound statement, but, uh, you know, we, we, we are addicted to our technologies and, um, you know, uh, I'd like to see us, uh, disengage a little bit and, and kind of remember what it was like before we were all, you know, actively online 24 seven. Um, and, and certainly when you're operating a motor vehicle, um, mm -hmm. you know, keep your eyes on the road. I appreciate that. Dr. Vickery, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. This is an absolutely wonderful conversation, and I know a lot of uh, folks will find it very useful. Any last words before we depart? Well, first of all, you know, I just want to say thanks um, for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. I love these podcasts. Um, you do a terrific job with it, and, um, and you know, I hope that people find it useful. It's, it's been fun. Uh, in terms of last words before we depart, um, I would just close with the preseason rankings are out and somehow uh, Ohio State got ranked number four. Um, but right behind them in, at number five is the Georgia Bulldogs. So watch out. We are coming for you this fall. Yeah, well, it's uh, the Ohio State University, but oh, um, excuse me. Yeah. Thanks for bringing as that if, up. As if there was some confusion about the other one. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. 
please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.